Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. China has made many breakthroughs and achievements in high-tech manufacturing in recent years. In the fourth quarter of 2023, China's electric vehicle maker BYD surpassed Tesla to become the best-selling pure EV maker in the world. On January 1st, China's first domestic-made large cruise ship made its first commercial voyage. So what is driving China's technological rise? How will China's high-tech manufacturing affect the world? And what's in store for the future of China high-tech industry? Join us for today's discussion from Beijing. I'm Xu Qinduo. Joining us today are Professor Joan Gong from the University of International Business and Economics, David Ma Hong, Executive Chairman of Ma Hong China Investment Management, Pascal Coppens, keynote speaker and author on Chinese innovation, and Professor Yan Liang from Williamette University. Welcome to Dialogue. So, John, I will start with you. You know, can we say for sure with the latest development that there is a rise of high-tech manufacturing in China. Well, absolutely. I would say China, you know, has made great stride in uh, making innovations, uh, in special innovations related to uh, manufacturing. Uh, it's a great industrial power. It is on the cutting edge on a lot of. Uh, uh, rising, you know, sun rising industries. And I think, um, you know, there's a fundamental reason behind this. I think it has a lot to do with, um, you know, Chinese government's um, industrial policy, R&D policy, science and development policy. Um, I vividly remember, I think it's in 2012 or 23, 13 time frame, there was an um, article in a very revered uh, journal called Harvard Business Review, <laughs> uh, pointedly titled, this article entitled, Can Chinese Companies Innovate? Now, looking back, you know, after, I would say, more than 10 years, a decade later, um, it's, it's just really a laughing stock to me that, uh, you know, somebody will write up something like this and get published in a very prestigious business journal. Definitely Chinese companies can innovate uh, and has been innovating a great heck of things. Um, and I would also point out that uh, a lot of uh, innovations uh, happen in the defense industries. I think, the, you know, if anything, the technological gap between China and the West is probably closed more prominently in the defense sector. In a couple of areas, actually, Chinese uh, defense industries leading. So I think, um, you know, definitely, to answer your question, definitely uh, is a resounding oh. yes. Okay. Uh, <coughs> so, Yan Liang, I mean, if uh, the Chinese companies can innovate, and if China is a tech power, if not a superpower, so how has China transformed itself into a world leader in science and technology you know, within just, uh, we are talking about a few decades, right? Right, good to talk to you, Qingdua. So I agree with John. I think if you look at the varieties of products, you know, going from defense technologies, as he mentioned, to solar panel, to civilian drones, to mobile phones, you know, China in many of these product categories occupy uh, over 70% of the global markets. And so I think that is uh, extraordinary. And I think what John emphasized here is um, there is a great support from the government. And by support, I not only mean you know policy incentives, regulations, but also public investments directly. Um, take EV as example, uh, the government has helped to secure, you know, 
mining and refineries abroad um, through public investments from the upstream, but then also to the downstream, the government has invested 1.8 million uh, public charging stations compared to, you know, United States, 140,000 of them. So I think government really plays a very weighty role. But in China, I think there are also other ingredients that really help it succeed. And that includes, for example, very solid manufacturing base that has been accumulating, uh, you know, over the decades. Um, there's also talents. Uh, we have 4.7 you know, million STEM graduates every year and also very talented entrepreneurs who are very innovation driven. Uh, we also have you know, huge pool of money, right? You take, it takes capital um, to make these innovations. Uh, we have private lending. We also have public you know, government-guided investment funds. Um, they're also very helpful in financing these endeavors. And last but not least, I think we also have very broad, big market that are able to create the kind of scale effect and also very broad public support. Um, think about, you know, uh, consumers, they really are ready to embrace EVs and they have very low, you know, for example, the range in anxieties compared to the United States. So I think all these five important components are really what drive the Chinese innovations and also commercializations of these technologies. Mm -hmm. Well, innovation and commercialization. Uh, Pascal, uh, you know, you are the expert on the Chinese uh, innovation. Uh, so how do you see, what are the secret recipe to the Chinese innovation? You know, how different is it, I mean, if there's any, with say, like Western innovation? I, I believe that uh, the secret is not so different from anywhere else, but maybe the, 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 the way that it has been developing is, is quite different, meaning that there was a lot of effort in the early of this century on, on infrastructure, on creating more talent, and mainly creating the foundation blocks that are needed. And so a lot of people wanted to become the best suppliers in the world from China to deliver to the world. That meant they needed to be very cost sensitive, and that is where I would say that uh, the optimization of, 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 of cost was important and innovation was, a, was actually needed to make that happen over time. But then I think after 2008, it's more about the digital environment and, and consumers being embracing this innovation these days. And then later on, since I would say 2015, there was a, a clear direction of the government, a clear direction to say we need to become a leader in innovation on a global level. And that's when they switched more from a domestic focus into a global focus to be able to compete with global brands. And that meant quality had to go up and it was really about inventions more and more. And so this is the phase we're in now. It's this phase where you could see that innovation has become part of the blood of China to actually move forward into that future. So David, uh, you have been living in China for decades. You understand China here. Say, you know, the government played a role, obviously. But if you look at the EV sector, for example, as we mentioned, uh, the BYD overtaking Tesla in terms of the production. Of course, uh, it, BYD is not alone. Uh, you have, uh, you know, Cherry and other uh, brands uh, from the Chinese market. They are also setting the sales records in you know, one after another. So what factors uh, you know, will you, uh, you know, attribute it to in terms of the EV market, or the EV maker's success that's so far? I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that there has been the very accurate role by government. Uh, without the government support in terms of backing businesses, making capital available, land to build the very factories that these cars or these component the componentry for the vehicles are, are made this is a very important role and also building the infrastructure in advance of the actual arrival of the vehicles 
which is one of the great barriers in many Western countries. They just don't have the structure. I mean, we've just had a figure there of China has 10 times the infrastructure for charging vehicles than the United States. Another thing I think which is very important that has two aspects, one is positive and one is negative, and that's the way that Chinese um, provinces, cities within provinces, even counties, all compete with each other. So we actually have too many EV producers. So like anything where there's a great initiative by government and massive participation by both private and state-owned companies, you get oversupply. And this has also been a feature of the growth of the EV market. The, the point about that is that China seems able to tolerate and later, laterally absorb oversupply in sectors. So we're now moving towards, I think, increasing consolidation amongst these stronger players that you've mentioned. And they're going to become the biggest vehicle companies in the world. Two of them already are. So China has a unique confluence of forces, which are not so common in Western countries. Mm. John, go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to. Uh, David made a very good point about the role of uh, local governments. Um, but you know, we'd be very careful about this uh, because, uh, as you know, uh, the European Union is initiating investigation <laughs> about Chinese, subsidies, yeah, right? electric uh, automobile mar market industry. Uh, you know, whether it has been subsidized or not. Um, well, the, the point I'm trying to make is that you know, absolutely, uh, there's a role being played by local governments in terms of uh, attracting uh, these businesses and helping them setting up things up and and also uh, um, in a way to make a, a life a lot easier for these companies but you know we have to keep in mind this is all uh, driven by uh, market competition, actually. You know, I, I, every time you know, but when, when people talk about industrial policy in China, I always have the view that you know the industrial policy, as we understand it, played by the central government in China, in my view, is very limited. Actually, uh, most of the um, you know these help come from the government, are from the local governments, and this is actually not from the central government, from, from a decree or something. It's all purely driven by market competition. In other words, um, you know, the companies. Um, the local governments have an incentive to help and um, and, and assist uh, the companies based in their jurisdiction to succeed in the market. And, and what that means is the tax revenues, the jobs, the, the you know the infrastructure funds that be available uh, for the local cities and all that kind of thing. So-called government subsidy is really driven by market competition, which is very unique if you think about it. Okay, so it's market competition driven. Uh, government's role in helping these companies to succeed, and I'm not sure this is a bad idea. Actually, uh, you know, if you look at the the end result here, you know, we have a very competitive electric market, electric car market. Normally, uh, automobile industry has a half a dollar index, which you know, economists and antitrust we call half a dollar index, which is you know close to two thousand. 1,500 leads, but here in China it's less than 1,000. We have over 100 brands, companies fiercely competing in this market. Is this a bad idea? I'm not sure, actually. I mean, certainly consumers are benefiting from it. I mean, the electric cars prices here in China is probably the most competitive in the world, right? And and you know, even if we speak of exports, I think it's not a bad idea. The European consumers are enjoying, you know, very pricely, uh, competitively priced electric vehicles, you know, whether it be from mm -hmm. China or not. Doesn't really matter to me. 
Uh, Yan Liang, if you look at the role by the central government, uh, you know, people would say, would point to this five-year plan or the long vision, long-term practice, you know, uh, developing the country's technology, innovation, either EV or the mobile phone or the 5G, for example. That's something, it's, it's almost like unique to the Chinese practice. Well, I don't think it's unique uh, in the sense that, you know, China, like many other countries, are, chi- uh, are trying to accomplish the so-called high-quality growth. And this is growth that is not relying on extensive uh, inputs of resources to growth, but rely on technology, productivity growth, mm-hmm. and inclusive growth. And so I think that is part of China's grand uh, development strategies. And other countries similarly share this kind of uh, ambition. Uh, I think what makes China unique, um, as John was talking about, is you have this confluences of, you know, central government is providing uh, public investments, financing, regulations, policies to support these businesses. And the local governments, on the other hand, are also, you know, helping the local government, local businesses uh, to thrive and also prompt them to compete and to strength, to, to strengthen uh, their competitiveness. And I think, you know, honestly, subsidies that, uh, you know, happen everywhere. I mean, in the United States where I live, uh, we have Infrastructure Act, we have Inflation Reduction Act, we have Chips and Science Act. I recently bought the Tesla. I got $75,000 federal um, subsidies um, for, for purchasing the car. And Europeans are the same. Um, they subsidize the production, they subsidize the purchases on, at the consumer end. So I think subsidies is you know, really unusual practice in that sense. Um, it's it's not really, you know, unique um, to the Chinese government. Um, but at the same time, I agree. I think the local governments are really helping a lot, not just providing, you know, sort of easy financing, but more importantly, help to coordinate, you know, the supply chain, and also to um, help to, uh, you know, recruit talents and so on and so forth. So governments do play a very important role. But I don't think any of these is sort of very unique to China in the sense of violating WTO rules. So for the WTO rules, um, as John mentioned, you have to have tangible evidence that this subsidy is to undercut uh, foreign competitions. Um, and it also has to produce the so-called tangible harms um, to these manufacturers. Now, in terms of China's EV uh, market share in Europe right now is about 8%. Volkswagen alone in China occupies more than 10% market share. So when it comes to you know this whole idea of you know harms, um, I think China should have uh, a bigger concern, right? A bigger reason to file this WTO uh, sort of a complaint. One last point I want to make is I think it's very helpful for actually governments to help to promote EV production and adoption, you know, for the grand, grander goal, uh, bigger scheme of things of, you know, achieving green transition and fight climate change. So I think if governments do try to subsidize and try to promote EV uh, industries and other green technologies, other green energies, um, I think that it's great. Um, but again, if you're using this kinds of excuses, right, or using this government prerogatives to, you know, ban Chinese imports or, you know, levy very high uh, tariffs on Chinese cars, for example, in the United States, now 17.5%, and they're still looking at uh, raising the tariff rates. So I think all these um, would really backfire. Um, I think that would not help these countries' competitiveness and will hurt the consumers and also delay their green transitions. Well, if you take a look at uh, other sectors, uh, uh, Pascal, you know, last year China's clean energy industry also showed this uh, rapid and strong development. Uh, For example, the actual new installed capacity of wind and solar power in China far exceeds the target of 160 gigawatts 
uh, set by the National Energy Administration. Uh, according to prediction, uh, in the 2023 amount of China's newly installed photovoltaic capacity may account for half of the world's total. In addition, the total production of lithium batteries in China increased by 31% in the first 10 months of uh, 2023. So do you see a similar development path maybe with the new and renewable energy together with, for example, other sectors like the EV, like the you know, mobile phone, like the uh, other renewable energies there? Well, I believe that uh, in general, the whole new energy market has been driven by a need from the market. Um, and this is often where it starts. But there, I mean, I've lived in China for a long, long time, and it, you didn't have to explain to consumers that there was a pollution problem in China. Some of the cities <laughs> yes. were really uh, have heavy pollution. And so it ended up that people actually understood there needed to be something done. And the government supported that very much. Now, on top of that, in that specific market, what you saw is that there was a market demand globally starting to be created, but definitely in China. And China, on top of that, needed also to look at just energy independence because it became also a more geopolitical envi environment these days, which meant that China needed to take care of its own energy. And so if you combine a need to somehow be more independent, a need for, um, for transitioning towards the future and a market demand, what that creates in China is a huge amount of companies and brands that all are fighting and competing. And that is what Professor uh, Yan just said, is it's really about the bottom up. This is about the bottom up competition. It's not about the subsidies from the government. It's not about the support from the government. It's about wanting to be leading in a market that has a demand. And that is when there's really a lot of things happening in China. And, and you could almost say that it's against all odds that of what the government is often doing, that these companies, specifically private companies like a BYD or a Geely, had to compete with sometimes state-owned enterprises. And so against all odds, they had to innovate. They had to become competitive. And they are doing that in many markets. So some of these markets, like the EV, are very visible these days. But there's many other markets where the same pattern is happening, where the same pattern of a big market demand, a global market demand, is happening, whether you look at biotech, or you look at chemicals or you look at any kind of market where there's a lot of high tech needed, but then also a combination where the government feels that, yeah, the transformation is needed to support the country to develop. And so when you have that combined with then the, the resilience of, of the Chinese innovators and the Chinese companies really wanting to compete in their home market and now on a global level, well, that is when that creates uh, quality over quantity. I mean, scale is one thing and oversupply is one thing, but on top of that, there's also quality. And so that is what we're seeing in many, many different markets. So I think uh, what we're seeing in the EV market and in the battery market and the renewable energy market is kind of a potential blueprint for many other markets to come. And so we have to look, in my view, to understand what China really has for the world to offer more at the bottom up and how they are trying to differentiate themselves amongst themselves rather than thinking that they actually are just waiting for the money from the central government and then try to compete on the global markets. That's not the way it goes. It often is how we perceive it, however, in, in Europe and in the West. We're joined, of course, you know, with uh, the rapid rise of uh, Chinese tech power. There are concerns, you know, from countries like the United States. You know, there's um, export restrictions on, on chips 
advanced chips in particular. How is that probably blocking or preventing the rise of China's, uh, in particular, the development of like Huawei and other companies? Well, I think, um, you know, the so-called competition between the United States and China, as we all understand, is all about competition in high tech, right? In some ways, I think the Europeans uh, probably hold the same view that, uh, you know, the hundreds long sort of technological supremacy of the West is being challenged by the Chinese. Um, and I think you know, behind this statement by Von der Leyen, the, the, the European Commission chairman, that China represents a systematic uh, rival. rival or whatever or, or challenge, okay, is the, you know, is, in my view, is the fear that, uh, you know, the good old days are gone, that, uh, you know, Chinese technology is about to challenge the dominance of the Western technology for, for hundreds of years. And I think that's, that's where this fear and scare is coming from. Now, but, but the, so, so, you know, it's not surprising to me that the, the West, particularly the United States, is, is cocking up something that uh, trying to slow China down. I think, uh, you know, the, the uh, international relations uh, professor, very famous guy, uh, Mersham, um, famously said, we got to slow China down, we got to slow China down, right? I mean, I think, you know, the U.S. policy is mostly about slowing China down uh, instead of uh, trying to run faster by itself. But the question is like, <laughs> can China overcome yeah. uh, that, uh, say, right. the force from the U.S.? Yeah, so I, I think if you look at the, um, the impact of these policies, uh, so-called small yard, high fence policies, right, um, I, I don't think they're going to make a much difference in the long run. I mean, historically, these things have been tried before, actually, vis-a-vis -vis the United States. Um, you know, the British Empire used to adopt something very similar to prevent the textile technologies from crossing the Atlantic Ocean, right? Mm. Uh, they did the same thing to the United States, but you know, over the time, over time, these policies invariably failed. So, uh, if anything, actually, it achieves the opposite effect. You know, preparing Chinese indigenous companies to even more investing in uh, self capabilities, in innovation. Um, so, it actually accelerates technology development here in China. Maybe, you know, the Huawei's chip capability, the new phone coming from Huawei, is probably just one example, uh, a tip of the iceberg of things to come. So, so I'm very skeptical about the uh, um, effectiveness of this kind of a policy. But nevertheless, you know, on the other side, if you really think of standing in the other side's shoes, they got to try these policies, even though they probably understand it's not going to uh, succeed eventually, but they still have to try it. Um, so that's the... That's they will the, do it anyway. They, they will do it Anyway, yeah. So that's the tragedy of you know tragedy of the big power politics, right? So um, you know we, we're gonna we, we're gonna be faced with this, this competitive landscape, and and hopefully I would say America adopts a uh, a more positive attitude. I think you know I'm actually in agreement with some of the with what Pottinger said actually. Um, he said competition is not necessarily a bad thing, and I totally agree. Competition is not necessarily a bad thing, mm -hmm. other than that the other side should compete by making itself run faster. You know, my our friend, Aina Tang has a very famous uh, example about uh, 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 Tanya Harding and, and Nancy Kerrigan, you know, in, in, in the uh, uh, ice skating competition, figure skating competition, right? Yeah. Harding hires somebody to, to, to strike uh, Nancy Kerrigan's knees, okay? This is what we call by slowing the other sides down, right? So this is not the way to compete. So I think this is a very good example to summarize the nature of this competition between the United States and China. <clears throat> well, Yan Liang, if you look at the uh, see the number of patents uh, China has filed uh, for the past uh, years, uh, as well as the uh, you know number of uh, 
papers most cited around the world, China ranks number one for years. But that says something about the Chinese innovation, right? Right, absolutely. So I think you're right um, that China is very playing a really, really leading role right now uh, in a lot of the innovations in the cutting edge technologies. As a matter of fact, according to Australia's think tank, China's innovations capability is now leading in seven, uh, 37 uh, critical industries uh, out of 44. So that just shows that you know China has becoming a innovative you know, powerhouse. That said, I think you know the next step, of course, is trying to commercialize some of these cutting edge technologies. And I think learning by doing is what China has been doing. And going back to the examples of the cruise line, um, I know that the localization rate of 30% has made people doubt that if China really have the capabilities. But this has been really China's MO, right? That they will start to introduce foreign technologies, adapt these technologies, and then absorb these technologies and reverse engineer and start to innovate itself. And so many of the industry experts argue that, you know, China is able to master some of the core technologies of shipbuilding in, you know, next 15 to 20 years. And going back to the patent, uh, it's interesting to know that during this five years of making this uh, cruise ship, China actually has filed 400 patents uh, related to the shipbuilding and standardization and so on and so forth. So I think, again, this is a learning process that, you know, China is leaping forward. And I also agree with John. I think, you know, the U U.S.'s and Europeans' strategies of containing China is only going to galvanize um, the all-society mobilization of resources, you know, capital, talent, government supports, entrepreneurship. All this will help to produce, uh, you know, even faster um, technological developments. Just take, you know, semiconductor chips, which is what I think what the United States is doubling down on its band. But when you look at the semiconductor foundry capacity, China grew from 0% of the global capacity back in 2005 to now 24%. Um, and then look at Huawei's, um, you know, Mate 60 Pro. And I, I think all of these are just, uh, you know, evidence that, you know, this kind of containment strategy is not going to work. And in the short, in the long term, I think really what needs to happen is like what John was suggesting, that we need to have constructive competition, that each country needs to try their best to you know, innovate and to deliver the best products for um, the demand. Mm -hmm. uh, David, your last words? I think there are negatives to competition too. The competition between the states and China means that many companies globally, because the states prohibits them dealing with China in high tech, are suffering and are losing massive profits every month. So that's bad for the global economy. So I think there are some downsides too. But in the end, the incumbent power facing a situation as America is facing now in competition from China, acting the way it is acting, it will lose. And ultimately China will win through. So China has a unique situation as a, an emerging market and a developed country as well. It has a massive domestic population and tremendous intellectual resources and a well-educated population. So this is something that I think will underpin the ongoing preeminence in so many areas in technology. Well, with that, we come to the end of today's discussion. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qingdu. See you next time. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.